The underlying philosophy of this for the people that truly believe in the drug war is we need to lock people in cages for doing a nonviolent action in their own home. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and members-only bonus content, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Democracy Now!, Fake the Nation!, The Young Turks!, The David Pakman Show!, The Tom Hartman Program!, and a progressive faith sermon from Reverend Roger Ray. Well, we turn now to look at how Attorney General Jeff Sessions is attempting to shake up policing in the country by limiting federal oversight of police departments with a history of civil rights violations while calling for an escalation of the war on drugs. Last week, Sessions ordered a wide ranging review of the federal government or the federal consent decrees with local law enforcement agencies that have been accused of brutality and violating civil rights laws. The review signals the Justice Department intends to shift away from monitoring and forcing changes within police departments, such as the police department of Ferguson, Missouri, where systematic racial discrimination by the police and the police killing of an unarmed 18 year old African-American Michael Brown sparked an uprising in 2014. This comes after Attorney General Jeff Sessions openly expressed concerns about efforts at police reform in a recent speech. Unfortunately, in recent years, law enforcement as a whole, I think, has been unfairly maligned and blamed for unacceptable deeds of a few bad actors. You've got some 800,000 state and local law officers and federal officers in America. Imagine a city of 800,000. Are you not going to have people who make mistakes, people who commit crimes out of that group? And so we're not perfect. We all know that. Department of Justice is going to fulfill its role to ensure that law enforcement officers are not out of control. And if they violate the law, they will be punished. But we've got to be careful about what we're doing. We cannot uh, malign entire departments. Too many of our officers, deputies, and troopers believe the political leadership in this country has abandoned them. I like that line from Pirates of Penzance. I think Gilbert and Stewart O'Lan says, um, when constabulary duties are to be done, to be done, the policeman's lot is not a happy one. You know, it's no fun to go out and hammer somebody and see them go to jail. Nobody likes to do that. But it's our duty. It's our lot. During this same speech in Richmond, Virginia, Attorney General Jeff Sessions called for what many see as a new war on drugs. We need to say, as Nancy Reagan said, just say no. Don't do it. My nation nation needs to say clearly once again that using drugs is bad. It will destroy your life. In the 80s and 90s, we saw campaigns uh, stressing prevention. We can do this again. Educating people and telling them the terrible truth about drugs and addiction will result in better choices by more people. We can reduce the use of drugs, save lives, and turn back the surge in crime that inevitably falls in the wake of increased drug use. 
For more, we're joined by two guests, Sherilyn Eiffel, president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and Norm Stamper, former chief of the Seattle Police Department and the author of the book To Protect and to Serve, How to Fix America's Police. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Sherilyn, let's begin with you. Um, is this a new war on drugs? And can you talk about the judge's decision? Well, what we see with uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions is an effort to basically take us back in time. And you, you heard, you know, in the clip that you, that you, uh, just posted, I mean, he talks about Nancy Reagan. I mean, this is a person who's stuck in the 80s and in some instances stuck in the 50s. And so it's not just about the war on drugs. It's a kind of a retro view of law enforcement and policing in which he's attempting to wipe out, uh, the last 30 years of progress, uh, in this country to the extent that it's been made. The last four years in particular, where we really been focused on the issue of policing reform, and you talked about Ferguson and the uprising and what's happened, this intense look at unconstitutional policing. This is what Jeff Sessions doesn't want to deal with. He talks about a few bad apples. He's not interested in looking at issues of systemic problems in the police department. But, you know, the statute that governs these investigations and consent decrees, like in Baltimore, is called the Law Enforcement Misconduct Statute, 42 U.S.C. 14141. It was enacted actually as part of the 1994 crime bill as a result of the Rodney King assault and the acquittal of those officers in the first trial. That's a statute that authorizes the attorney general to investigate unconstitutional policing to engage in these consent decrees. So to the extent that he's a law and order attorney general, this is a law he's willing to completely ignore. In Baltimore, what he's attempted to do is essentially to undermine a consent decree that had been entered in January, had been negotiated over the course of six months by the city of Baltimore and by the Department of Justice. As soon as he came into office, Jeff Sessions immediately tried to begin slow walking approval of consent decree, even up to last week, uh, the day before there was to be a public hearing when the community was to come before the federal judge and, and explain to him what they wanted to see in the consent decree, Jeff Sessions filed a motion asking for a 90-day extension for the judge to review the decree. The judge approved the decree. And even then, uh, Jeff Sessions released a statement essentially criticizing the decree, saying he thinks it will make people in Baltimore less safe. We tried to intervene in the case because we believe the Department of Justice under Jeff Sessions has no intention of fully enforcing the decree. The judge did not allow us to intervene, basically said it's too early uh, that he uh, assumes that the Department of Justice will enforce the decree. Um, I, I hope he's right. I, I think we have enough reason to believe that Jeff, Jeff Sessions has no intention of actually enforcing the consent decree that really will bring about transformative policing in Baltimore City. People well, in Baltimore have been waiting for this for years. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen, it's certainly not in my memory, in the memory of, of most people, such a complete about face yeah. of a federal of a federal institution versus what the policy was in December and November of last year to what it is now. And, and the, the impact on so many of these cities that already have these decrees uh, in terms of the fact that the Justice Department has a responsibility to enforce them. I'm wondering what you're thinking, what's going to happen. It's, it's actually quite astonishing. I mean, he ordered this review of a 14 consent decree. So we're talking about Ferguson, we're talking about Cleveland, we're talking about places all over the country in which police departments themselves have gotten on board with the idea of transformation. You know, I, I when I met with Jeff Sessions and I met with him, I, I said to him, do you actually talk to local police? Because the, the chief of police in Baltimore will tell you out of his mouth, he wants the consent decree. Even the head of the FOP uh, said at their their most recent labor summit in Las Vegas, the Fraternal Order of Police, said consent decrees bring resources to police departments. If you talk to uh, police chiefs, we work with the 
International Association of Chiefs of Police. They know that this is a moment when reform has to happen, that there does have to be 21st century policing. And so I question Jeff Sessions. I, I understand you have your own views, but do you talk to police? The man who was who was uh, just confirmed as Jeff Sessions' deputy, Rod Rosenstein, he's the uh, former U.S. attorney from Baltimore, just a week before I met with Attorney General Sessions, had indicted seven Baltimore police officers for racketeering from the elite gun unit, police officers who were shaking down residents of the community. I told this to Jeff Sessions. He's got his own worldview, and he came in with that worldview, and no fact is going to shake that view. does pot legalization fare under a Jeff Sessions uh, attorney generaldom? Uh, it, it, may I jump in? Please. Uh, it, it is a huge step back and just a terrible thing for the United States. He, he was an awful attorney general pick. He's in favor of civil asset forfeiture where if, if police suspect your car has been used in a, drug, uh, in a drug operation, they can just seize it without a trial. They can just take your stuff. And on top of that, he wants to outlaw marijuana. There's this weird reversal right now where Republicans are usually for states' rights and, and Democrats like national solutions. And now it's flipping in the drug arena because we have a, a guy that's a very big unreformed drug warrior from the 70s who wants to use the national government to crack down on California and Oregon and these states that have rightly legalized marijuana. Uh, it's, it's not a good thing. And even if he, even if there's some kind of standstill between the states that have legalized it, and it's a, a huge amount now in this last election versus the, the federal government, uh, if, if you're trying to open up a business or anything like that, it becomes incredibly complicated because let's say you, want, you just want a dispensary. And I, I think there's nothing wrong with, with recreational pot, but I want to make this like a really nice guy who's only doing it for medical purposes. You can't get a loan from a bank out of state because right. that could be seized by the federal government at any time. You're in violation of federal law. Now, during Obama, he basically said, uh, we're going to just respect the state's positions. But Sessions coming in, that's going to stop now. So it's, it's, it's a step back for America. You know, I thought one of the things that was – well, here's a quote from Sessions uh, <laughs> that I think is just kind of funny. He said, I think one of Obama's great failures is his lax treatment in comments on marijuana. <laughs> so oh, like yes. that was one of his great failures. Um, but I think what's interesting about Sessions is that he sort of came to his political Political maturity, um, or sort of came into political life when after Nixon had already declared a war on drugs. So he's kind of in, been in that yeah. mindset for a really long time. Um, and one of one of my favorite quotes from Nixon is, uh, "By God, we are going to hit the marijuana thing, and I want to hit it right square in the." Puss. Um, so yeah, I thought, <laughs> good old casual Nixon. Yeah, suck it to me. What a, did you just sit down and have a beer with that guy with the sleeves rolled up? It's oh, just a weird thing to say. Suck it in the I, puss. I didn't know that marijuana had uh, well anyway, marijuana thing. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, and then and then of course you know it came out in the nineties when John Ehrlichman, who was one of Nixon's advisors, he came out and said that you know they uh, that 
they basically made up the war on drugs so that people would start associating like hippies um, with marijuana and black people with harder drugs. And they would, and so we could hate, and these were the the lefties that were causing so many problems for them, right? Um, And so Ehrlichman said, we could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Um, and so, so, so Sessions is really kind of still operating as like a vestige of this war on drugs, uh, which I think well, is he probably he probably likes it for the same reasons. You know, I, I mean, I, 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 yeah, Jeff Sessions probably hasn't smoked a ton of weed in his day. Like he probably <laughs> does have an old fashioned attitude towards drugs in general. Eating cookies with the other Keebler elves. Right. <laughs> <laughs> But it wouldn't surprise me to learn that or, or to know that, that the real reason why he likes the war on drugs is for the same reason the Nixon administration liked it. I mean, Jeff Sessions is a guy who has a long history of problematic behavior towards people of color, a long history. You know, he was denied a federal judgeship by his own party because of his problematic statements about race. You know, the guy yeah. is, you know, uh, you know, it, it has an abysmal record when it comes to issues of race. So the idea that he views this as like, this is something that a bunch of liberals and colored folks do. And this war allows us to throw them all in jail, like, wouldn't surprise me in the least bit. Like, it seems totally of a piece with his entire approach to governing. Uh, I'll, I'll give him the, the benefit of the doubt on racism. I, I have not met him, but I'll just give him the benefit of the doubt. But I, I don't think you have to have a uh, a negative intention there for this to be an absolutely terrible thing that he's doing. I mean, the 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 underlying philosophy of this for the people that truly believe in the drug war is we need to lock people in cages for doing a nonviolent action in their own home, and that's just nuts. So that's not you know all of the all the individualism that Jeff Sessions does trumpet all the time. This is directly in, in uh, contrary towards. And if if you know we wanted to get the government involved at all, then it should be dealing with it like a medical problem. And uh, and it's your your point, Dan. If if you did want to design a program to ruin Black America, the drug war did an amazing job. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if some of the architects were. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I wonder if this is going to be, you know, if stopping marijuana, because he's also admitted that he was surprised by how popular legalization is, um, which is like, which is also a dude, reminder that Jeff Sessions is really, really old. He's old, he is but so totally old. out of touch, yeah. like doesn't, I don't know. He's like, Did you hear what the kids open these an internet days? page? Right. Yeah. It's a series of tubes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. So I, I don't know because he's like admitting that he's like he's stunned by how popular it is and that maybe he, he wouldn't have the kind of public support that he might feels like he might need. I'm not sure if he's, you know, striking the sale of marijuana in those states is going to be a priority for him. Plus, he's so busy suppressing voter rights. Like, that takes a lot of time yeah. out of your day. So, like, you know, it's going to be maybe too much on his plate. Then again, putting people he doesn't like in jail for marijuana possession is a great way to suppress their voter rights. Yeah. yeah. And, like and, a and good keeping thing to people do. in jail that are already there, because there's right. quite a few people that are hoping for appeals that are going to get denied this. Which, by the way, one of the things, uh, another thing about the first 100 days is that, like, one of their quote-unquote accomplishments is that they want to continue the use of private prisons, right? There was, like, a moratorium on the use of private prisons or something like that under Obama, and then that was, uh, they're rolling that back. Uh, so this is, again, I think, a piece of, of with that of, like, no, let's, let's you know, for possession, let's throw them in. We've got these, uh, let's not slow down the prison uh, industrial complex.
Under the Obama administration, uh, federal prosecutors eased off just a little bit in some circumstances when it came to drug-related charges. And uh, that came about in a number of different uh, ways. But that's all in the past now. We've got Jeff Sessions, and he has now previewed a far harsher, newer drug policy, effectively doubling down on the war on drugs of decades past. Uh, let's go to video five. Today I am announcing that I sent a memo to each of our United States attorneys last night establishing a charging and sentencing policy for this Department of Justice. And I trust our prosecutors in the field to make good judgments. They deserve to be unhandcuffed and not micromanaged from Washington. Rather, they must be permitted to apply the law to the facts of each investigation. I have empowered our prosecutors to charge and pursue the most serious offense, as I believe the law requires, uh, most serious, readily provable offense. But it is important to note that unlike previous charging memoranda, I have given our prosecutors discretion to avoid sentences that would result in an injustice. We're seeing an increase in violent crime in our cities, particularly in Baltimore, Chicago, Memphis, and Milwaukee, St. Louis, and many others. The murder rate has surged 10% nationwide, the largest increase in murder since 1968. And we know that drugs and crime go hand in hand. They just do. The facts prove that so. If you want to collect a drug debt, you can't file a lawsuit in court. You collect it with the barrel of a gun. Would have loved to have been there for the follow-up question. Uh, so if we made it legal, couldn't you then do it in court? <laughs> Wouldn't you then not need to use the gun? That's how that works, actually. Uh, I don't believe them. I just don't. I don't believe anything comes out of his mouth. I mean, are we seeing, is the murder rate the highest increase? But still, it, I guess it is, but it's still lower than it been in some yes. time because it was it's it hit remarkably record. lower than in 1968. Yeah. I know that's not what he's saying. He's talking about percentage increase. That's why he's saying it that way, though. Exactly. That's meant to deceive you as if crime is out of, running out of control when, in fact, it's gone way down since and, the 80s, 90s, etc. And well, down, and also in many, many, many other major cities. Yeah. But he picked single. He cherry picked the yeah. ones where well, crime is raising. And but, by the way, that, that really fast. That's how numbers work. As they get smaller. A smaller increase is a bigger percentage increase. That's one of the benefits of things getting smaller. That's is right. manipulating that to fool people. If you're a major league player and it's May and you're hitting 153, you go three for four, your batting average yeah. is going to go up 30 points. It's yeah. going to be a nice day. <laughs> the, uh, you know, the Trump I administration. Was about to say that. Yeah, I know you were. Um, uh, sorry to steal that from you. Um, the, uh, the you know, the Trump administration is touting the jobs figures that are obviously left over from the Obama administration, and presidents in general take too much credit for that, as we know of both parties. But the funny thing is, is that they'll take credits for the job increases of an of a robust economy left by the by the previous president, uh, at least by some indicators. But here, the crime numbers, which were given to him incredibly low, then th these somehow or the rise in crime. Okay, well, if you get the jobs. Don't you also get the crime increase? Is this now yeah. on you on day 113? But I don't yeah. imagine they'll be embracing that. So to go to the heart of this issue uh, on, on the war on drugs. So they're now going to amp it up, right? So uh, there's over 200,000 people in federal prisons, let alone state prisons uh, in, in America. On, on drug charges. Uh, on, uh, no, no, on char uh, overall. Overall. Right? Right. And 50% of them are right. for drug crimes. So now marijuana is a... 
at a minimum, no different than alcohol, okay? In reality, it is actually much better for you than alcohol. But they both have their downsides, obviously. Uh, marijuana at least has upsides. The upsides that both have is they, uh, you have fun on them. I know that the Republicans don't want that fun is, uh, to be outlawed. <laughs> but imagine if we locked up over 100,000 people for having a beer or selling a beer. Like, oh, you got to get that Alfred Kors guy. He's like, oh, man, he's uh, causing a lot of trouble by selling those beers around here. Where's Mr. Light? Bud Light, that's what we're looking for here, right? And they just, they just imprisoned so many of us, so many Americans for having a beer. It's not that hard to imagine. That's what we did during prohibition. And guess what happened? Crime went way up because you did prohibition of something that people wanted to consume. So then you had Al Capone and you had the gangs and that's what we have now. So now this Jeff Sessions guy and his other band of morons come together and go, Hey, you know what? I got a great idea. Let's stuff more. Americans into our prisons. And by the way, we also happen to conveniently lift the ban on private, uh, on the federal government using private prisons that Obama had put in. So our friends who donate a lot of campaign contributions to us that run private prisons will now make a lot more money by imprisoning you guys for doing something perfectly innocent. So look, I, I'm, I'm way over the top on this. So any politician that doesn't want to legalize marijuana, you should never vote for. So I know that they should wait a minute now, Diane Feinstein or whoever, this 98 year old senator doesn't understand and they're, then, then get out, get out, get out, get out. I'm tired of one, Americans being imprisoned for something that should be exactly within our rights and I thought we lived in a free country. You can't smoke a weed? I mean, that's crazy. That's not freedom. Don't say you're in favor of freedom if you say, no, 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 no. That thing that grows on the ground, we, you can't, you're not allowed to smoke it, okay? Because I have morality. My morality says I'm, I'm against it. Number two, I'm done with imprisoning minorities over and over again, hundreds of thousands. I mean, when we get to the states, it's in the millions, right? Millions of people in prison for something that should be perfectly legal. So that they can make a buck off of it, let alone the hundreds of thousands that have died from this drug war. Yep. And then this monster says, let's double down on the war on drugs. Let's put more people in prison. It's a gross injustice. First of all, all the Republicans, and not every Republican's on this, but 95% of them at least, throw them all out. Yes, throw them all out. And I, the people in Washington, they're so old. They're wedded to the old days. Even Obama, like they laugh anytime you bring about legalization. I remember one time they asked Obama about it. It's like, <laughs> legalization, that's not like an important issue. Yes, it's an important issue because you're imprisoning millions of Americans. You shouldn't imprison alone, uh, let alone the fact that you're in, trampling all over our rights and, and you don't believe in freedom. So any politician who doesn't want to legalize should be removed from office. They are part of this system that is enslaving our fellow Americans. Well, I'm glad you brought up the minority aspect of it because this is, this is just straight up a racist policy, okay? The whole war on drugs was, and it's the, and the, the point being what those cities he talked about are largely black cities. And, and what it's, he's saying is we're going to go back to the old days that if you're black or Mexican or, or brown or any other and you have drugs, you're going to jail for a long time. White people don't go to jail for possession of marijuana. White people don't go to jail for selling marijuana. And like you said, his friends run these private prisons and they're going to make a ton of money. Now, with Obama, he wouldn't go for legalization, but he did say, look, we're not going to put nonviolent drug offenders in jail. Yeah. It doesn't work. Stop it. And, and the, the comical thing of, of 
What Session just said was that he just said, I'm not going to micromanage my prosecutors. And then two sentences later said, I'm going to have my prosecutors go for the maximum penalty. So he is micromanaging them, meaning that if you're a federal prosecutor and you get somebody like you're talking about, the the person smoking weed and they got, you know, a bag of weed in the car or something like that, that that under Obama's policy, it was like, okay, you got to go to rehab or you got to go to some, you know, AA meetings or whatever. Yeah, whatever it is. He's saying, put that person in jail. You you have to prosecute. You know, th- this has been proven so many times to not work. It's been proven it's a racist policy. Even if, you know, you, you go back to the war on drugs in the 80s, right? So if you're black and you had crack, you're going to jail for 20 years. And if you're white and you had a bunch of powder cocaine, they called your dad. Come yeah. get come get your son. Yeah. By the way, just let me back up some of the facts here that Alonzo uh, generally referred to. Uh, white people and black people, uh, according to studies in America, smoke marijuana at the same rate. Blacks are arrested at a four times greater rate than whites are for for the same exact thing. So everybody's smoking it, but they're doing selective enforcement and they're targeting minorities on purpose. And it's not an accident. Nixon, when he uh, started the war on drugs, it, one of his top aides admitted in the 1990s, we wanted to target our political enemies, hippie liberals and black people. They said it. So if you're for the war on drugs, you are literally supporting a racist policy, a policy that was intended to be racist. And, and to the really fast, because I got a stat, I got to show uh, to the the micromanaging. Uh, he specifically said, and you can you can get the entire two page memo where they go into more detail that they have to list how much of the drug there was, which often they would not do under Obama. And the reason is that once you list it, that can trigger mandatory minimum sentences. It stops you from having the flexibility to possibly not and have them stay in jail that long. But really fast, I want to show the effect of this, the effect under Democrats and Republicans and how Obama actually uh, broke with this pattern. If we can skip ahead to graphic 17 and bring that up, you're going to see uh, the, the prison population. And you see they're fairly standard for literally 50 years. And then under Reagan starts to shoot up, goes up through Republicans and Democrats there under Clinton shooting up as well. And then finally under Obama starts to go down again as he both doesn't uh, get his federal prosecutors to lock up people for nonviolent drug crimes and also uh, provides clemency for tens of thousands of people who've uh, been know, there previously. A bunch of things here, because first of all, the, that graphic is incredibly important. And, and, um, and, and Obama made mistakes and had an opportunity to take marijuana off Schedule 1 and didn't. But if you'll remember, the Federal Drug Administration for the first time said, you know, we're going to open it up. To research now, mm-hmm. right? The process had begun. Progress had begun. You see that turn. Politics usually is a is a slow move. It is rare that we get the moment that we got on gay marriage, which was like we talked about it for two hours, and then we were like, "Oh, great! You know what? Gay people can marry." It was fantastic. That's great. If the civil rights movement had been like that, it would have been terrific. But usually, you have to go through yeah. the struggle. And I'm not minimizing the struggle gay people went through, but from from it, it happened very quickly. Surprise people. So. Again, one of the mistakes we made with Trump, no matter what you think of Hillary Clinton, we would have continued to see it drop down slowly. There would have, because those are the judges she would have appointed, the Federal Drug Administration, the, the FDA was on the road, or the drug, and whoever did it, whoever, I think it's whoever decides on the schedules, right? But that progress, eventually they would have been like, okay, now we're going to move it to, we're going to make it a schedule two. It would have happened. So we retarded progress again by electing Donald Trump. Um, and then, uh, just little, little things that, that Sessions, who seems like he was right out of the Nixon era, right? Uh, little things I'd say that he before mentioned. before that, Sessions yeah, comes out of the 50s. 
Yeah, the 1850s. Session still That's believes right. in like reefer madness. That's right. You know, they're going to so, get hopped up on those reefers. But, but so Jeff Sessions, the, when he says the little things, he used the old states' rights argument. We're not going to micromanage from Washington. Except I just want to point out, these are federal prosecutors. Yeah. They all work for Washington. There's no state issue. You can't have it different in Colorado than you have it in New York. They are federal prosecutors. And then the nonsense at the end, we're gonna, but we'll tell people to don't be unjust in the sentences. Yeah. <laughs> uh, nice. I mean, if I don't know anything about Jeff Sessions' personal history, but I would be very surprised if Jeff Sessions, uh, wasn't worth $17 million when he finally retires because of significant investment in CCA or something like that. And every single person who I suspect many of our audience have, but every single person who hasn't seen uh, Ava DuVernay's 13th uh, still yes. available on Netflix should see it yeah. instantly. It's fantastic. It'll change. It'll completely change the way you think about the war on drugs. And finally, Jeff Sessions, uh, when he was attorney general of Alabama, pushed for a bill that if you were caught uh, drug trafficking twice, would have given you the death penalty. The death penalty. So that's who Jeff Sessions is. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. Deaths from opiate overdoses are falling drastically in states that have legalized marijuana. We've been following Jeff Sessions and the Justice Department's promise to crack down on marijuana and on states that have already decided to legalize it, because, of course, states' rights don't matter to Republicans if they don't want you legalizing weed. Meanwhile, we're actually seeing marijuana legislation, uh, legalization legislation, having a positive impact on drug overdoses and it's also having a positive financial impact for states that have legalized. According to a new study by UC San Diego, which was published in a journal called Drug and Alcohol Dependence, states that have legalized marijuana have had uh, fewer. Um, well, number one, they're not having marijuana related emergency room visits. So those scare tactics about people are going to OD, you're going to have uh, emergency rooms filled with people on marijuana. That hasn't happening. That hasn't been happening. But we're also seeing fewer people on opiates come into emergency rooms. And on average, in states that have legalized weed, hospitals have seen a 23% decline in patients seeking opiate addiction treatment. 
and there's been a 13% decline in opioid overdoses. This is the fifth recent study to show drops in opiate addiction in states that have legalized marijuana. It's not one study that says this. In response to the study, uh, Dr. Esther Chu, who's an emergency medicine professor at Oregon Health and Science University, said, quote, it is becoming increasingly clear that battling the opioid epidemic will require a multi-pronged approach and a good deal of creativity. Could increased liberalization of marijuana be part of the solution? It seems plausible. There's a 2014 study which found a 25% drop in opioid overdose deaths in states with legal medical marijuana, and we're now seeing the same impact with legal recreational marijuana. As a reminder, an alternative view on marijuana legalization, Jeff Sessions said last month in Richmond, Virginia, the attorney general of the United States, I'm astonished to hear people suggest that we can solve our heroin crisis by legalizing marijuana so people can trade one life wrecking dependency on another. Jeff Sessions has also said that marijuana is only slightly less awful than heroin. Uh, on a saner note, Democratic Senator Claire McCaskill of Missouri is leading an investigation of the manufacturers of the top five prescription opioid medications in the U.S. And uh, they want to explore how these companies have contributed to opioid overutilization and overprescription. Um, there's nothing surprising in the data. No, nothing surprising at all. What I continue to be shocked by is people who think that marijuana and heroin are in any way the same thing in terms of the damage they cause or the way that they function in the body or anything at all, period. And number two, the idea that anything approximating the war on drugs is going to be good in any sense, incarceration, health outcomes, anything. How does anybody still believe that at this point? I don't get it. And what's the top argument against legalizing marijuana? That marijuana is a gateway drug and it will cause people to move on to opiates and heroin once they get sick or tired of using marijuana. These studies kind of show the opposite. Don't absolutely. They? Absolutely. They do. And, you know, I don't know how much people know about this, but it's very common that people who ultimately get addicted to heroin, it starts with a, a legitimate prescription for opiate painkillers, often overprescribed and addictive by nature, even if uh, uh, properly prescribed. People say, well, I need more of these. My prescription's out. I'm going to go buy painkillers on the street. Then they realize, oh, the heroin is cheaper than the painkillers. It's a disaster. It is an absolute and total disaster. And I'm glad that this research is being done. To expect you in the hay, you in the hay, you in the hay, needle in the hay. Rodrigo Duarte is the new president of the Philippines. This is a guy who ran on the platform of tough on crime. In fact, he was he was referred to in the Philippines. He just he just he was just elected a few months ago. Was referred to in the Philippines as the Philippines Donald Trump. And proudly, you know, yeah, that's me. And he was elected. And he had told a group of reporters 
This was earlier this month. And I quote, he's talking about drug users and drug dealers, drug users, right? The victims of the war on drugs. He said, my order is to shoot to kill you. I don't care about human rights. You better believe me. The Philippine war on drugs. Rodrigo Duarte launched a Filipino version of Richard Nixon's war on drugs. Now, you'll recall Richard Nixon's war on drugs. John Ehrlichman told us the reason for it was that they wanted to bust up the hippies and they wanted to bust up the 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 civil rights movement, essentially. And so they they made heroin and, and pot super illegal. And, you know, whether they planted it on people or people were using it, you know, they, you know, they just went after that. Well, this this war on drugs in the Philippines is now seven weeks old. This is as of uh, as of the twenty third, three days ago. Seven weeks old, one thousand nine hundred people have died. Nineteen hundred people have died. You know, over a hundred thousand Mexicans have died just on our border in the war on in the Mexican war on drugs. Millions of Americans have had their lives ruined by the war on drugs in this country since Richard Nixon launched it in the, in the late 1960s, early 1970s. Millions of people. And, and I would say probably between tens and hundreds of thousands of people have died as a result of the war on drugs. This is crazy. Portugal had the highest, excuse me, the third highest drug addiction rate in Europe. Now that includes Europe these days now includes a number of very, very, you know, former, the former Soviet states that are very, very poor countries where they have, uh, you know, uh, that are, that are closer, that are farther south and, and east and closer to, uh, the principal source of, of heroin these days and opium, which is Afghanistan. And so there's, you know, a couple of countries that had higher drug addiction rates, but among the developed countries of Europe, the so-called Western European nations, Western and Northern European nations, Portugal was number one in terms of drug addiction, and particularly heroin, and uh, new infections of HIV and Hep C, which come along with you know sharing needles. So Portugal decriminalized all drugs. They did the exact opposite of what the Philippines did eight weeks ago, when their new president came in. They did the exact opposite. They decriminalized all drugs. And this was 14 years ago, in 2002. And now they have one of, if not the lowest drug addiction rates in all of Western Europe, arguably probably all of Europe. And the rates of new HIV and Hep C infections have just collapsed. And the, you know, organized crime in Portugal, at least that part of organized crime that was involved in the drug trade, it, it broke their back. They're destroyed. They're gone. Toast. We're watching in real time this terrible mistake in the Philippines. 1,900 people killed in the first seven weeks in the so-called war on drugs. And whereas in Portugal, People, I mean, the Portuguese government, first of all, everybody in Portugal has free health care. So they stopped treating drug addiction as a crime, started treating it as a, as, a, as a medical issue. 
And drug addicts are now, they, you know, now they can get their drugs and they can get clean syringes if they're using injectable drugs. And we're talking all drugs, you know, LSD, cocaine, heroin, you name it. I mean, but the big ones, of course, are, are heroin and, and pot. But they, but they decriminalized everything and, and had this really, really good result. Whereas here in the United States, there was just a, a story, I think it was Indiana, might have been Ohio, somewhere in the Midwest, where something like 18 people had died over the course of a day or two because a new batch of heroin arrived and it had been cut with fentanyl or one of these other pharmaceutical drugs that are actually far more potent than heroin. Yes, heroin is not the most potent or addictive opioid drug. There are a number of prescription drugs that are more powerful than heroin. And, you know, in many parts of the world, heroin is used as a, as a, I believe, as a pharmaceutical. It's the dihydromorphine, I think is the, is the chemical name for it. And it's just, a, 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 heroin is just morphine that has had, you know, a slight change to its molecular structure that makes it a little bit more potent than morphine. Or arguably a lot more potent than morphine. But this is, you know, these simple lessons for us. How to figure this stuff out. I mean, it's just simple lessons. But there's so much money to be made here in the United States. Oh, and, and, and these people who are, who are dying in the United States because they're getting heroin that's laced with, you know, that's been cut with, with pharmaceuticals. That's because the heroin is illegal. Right? I mean, you, you can't, you're not going to end heroin addiction by outlawing it. Particularly when you consider that it is, by and large, a medical problem. I mean, addiction is a medical problem. Whether it's addiction to, to, to caffeine, to nicotine, to heroin, to, I mean, you name it, alcohol. These are medical problems that should be treated as medical problems. Tony scored 10 kilos from a pair of shiny black shoes With an eagle in his haircut and an earphone on his tongue After he got busted, he couldn't make no bail Cause we're making money off the stand and money off the jail. Yeah! But we're winning the war on drugs. We're winning the war on drugs. Grace Lord and Pass Walker winning the war on drugs. You can throw them in your basement. Score them off the drugs. Put your hands against the car. We're winning the war on drugs. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism call Congress to support the Justice Safety Valve Act of 2017. Now, remember that time before the election when politicians on both sides of the aisle were finally talking about and actually agreeing on criminal justice reform legislation? It may feel like a distant memory, but it really wasn't that long ago, and it's still in the works. As of April of this year, Senators Cory Booker and Rand Paul's REDEEM Act has been reintroduced in the House and Senate. The REDEEM Act would seal or expunge records relating to federal nonviolent criminal offenses. But Trump's Attorney General Jeff Sessions has other plans. His recent memo directed prosecutors to seek the toughest possible sentences, even for nonviolent drug offenders. In response, 
Senators Rand Paul and Patrick Leahy introduced new legislation to stop Sessions from taking us back to the drug war years of the 70s and 80s. The legislation, known as the Justice Safety Valve Act, is not new, but a 2017 version was reintroduced in the Senate as S-1127 with companion legislation H.R. 2435, reintroduced by Representatives Bobby Scott and Thomas Massey in the House. The Justice Safety Valve Act is simple. It would empower federal judges to give out sentences below the mandatory minimum in certain cases. And as Rolling Stone put it this week, it would effectively neutralize the memo from Sessions. So your action today is twofold. First, call, write, fax, and leave voicemails for your representatives and senators telling them that you support passage of the Justice Safety Valve Act and the Redeem Act, and that you oppose Jeff Sessions' extreme, expensive, and racist directives. And second, get involved with the organization Drug Policy Alliance, which works to promote drug policies that are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. Visit drugpolicy.org and follow them on Twitter at drugpolicyorg. Sessions has a long, well-known history of racism and a bizarre hatred for those who do what they want with their own bodies. At a time when the right is calling the movement for black lives domestic terrorists and stoking fear of immigrants, it's all too clear that Sessions is abusing his new position of authority to target people of color and advance a political agenda. He must be stopped. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if stopping America from returning to some of its darker days of injustice is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about supporting the Justice Safety Valve Act of 2017 via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed? Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now. Because that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. My brother and I had a, a high school friend who was arrested on a drug charge. And his arrest was unusual enough back in the 70s that it was the, the story of the arrest was actually published in the Glasgow Daily Times. My father read the story aloud to us in the family room and then he folded the paper. He looked at my brother Billy and me and said, if either of you are ever arrested with drugs, I'll come to the jail, but not to bail you out. I'll bring my pistol, and I will shoot you between the bars and kill you where you sit. Now, my father was a deacon at the first Christian church in Glasgow. My mother was the church secretary. They had attended Bible studies and Sunday school all of their lives. They knew the story of the prodigal son. But my father had no intentions of showing mercy to a son of his who might have ever used drugs. Now, my mother would have added wine and beer to that list. Thank God she didn't have a vote. (laughs) I don't want you to think that my parents were monsters, although that was monstrous to say that to your own children. They also did a lot of good things. They were hardworking, honest, disciplined people. But they both represented the role 
of the obedient son who stayed home in the prodigal son story. They were the people who followed the rules. They worked hard. They paid their taxes. They were productive. They were religious. They did not bring shame on the family. And because they had devoted their lives to not bringing shame on the family, they would not tolerate anyone else who did either. So when I hear of mercy killings in the West Bank or in the Gaza Strip, I'm never surprised. I understand that world. I came from that world. I knew that I, too, could mess up badly enough that I would have been the victim of an honor killing. It's in the Quran. It's in the Hebrew Bible. Not simply as a threat or a concept, Jesus probably had seen it done. When he tells this story of the prodigal son, he is telling it as one who saw the prodigal son being stoned to death. Jesus tells the story to a peer group who have expected, maybe albeit sadly, but still fully expected, that the prodigal son would be drug outside the city and stoned to death. And his brother might have thrown the first stone. It's not been shown here in Springfield, but one of the Oscar-winning documentaries this year was Girl in the River, which is about honor killings in Pakistan, where now between 700 and 1,000 honor killings take place every year, nearly three-fourths of which are young women, many of whom were victims of rape, that if they were raped, they have brought dishonor on the family and they are killed. In America, we really we don't tolerate honor killing. We don't do honor killing. It's too messy for us. It's too obscene for us. And besides, we're Americans. We can figure out how to make a profit off of this. We can figure out how to make money out of someone who messes up. Drug use is the distant land our prodigals wander into. In the 1960s, President Lyndon Johnson began a war on poverty, and it was It was a great idea, and it was actually having success. I don't think we talk enough about how much could be done if a nation resolved to actually go to war on poverty. But by 1971, President Nixon turned the war on poverty into a war on the poor, called the war on drugs. I have no idea whether he actually believed his own propaganda or if decades later Nancy Reagan actually believed that it was a matter of Just say no. But tremendous resources were brought to bear in policing, international drug interdiction, and, of course, a massive buildup of prisons where we punish the addicted for being addicted. Just say no. Just just, just say no. I heard one expert in the field of addiction treatment say, that you could just say no to uh, urinating for the next 48 hours. Just say no. It's your choice. You're in charge. It's up to you. Just don't go pee for 48 hours. And you thought you were uncomfortable when I told you about my father threatening to shoot me. (laughs) I've got about 10 more minutes of this sermon, ladies and gentlemen, before you have any possibility of slipping out of here unnoticed. There are about 23 million people with addiction problems in the United States. 23 million. 23 million people who cannot go to sleep if there's a beer left in the refrigerator. 23 million people who will not visit your home for a dinner party 
without making an excuse to go into the master bathroom and looking in your medicine cabinet to see if you've got anything they might harvest. We have estimated that there are about 10,000 people in the Springfield area who are using meth, but even that scourge has lately seen itself being edged out of the market by a resurgence of heroin use. Americans have an incredible appetite for drugs. We uh, Americans make up 5% of the global population, but we consume 40% of the world's drugs. And that after 45 years of a multi-billion dollar war on drugs. Still, we are consuming the world's lion's share of illegal drugs. Over the years, the hunger for more strict punishments continues to raise the bar. You can be charged with a felony for possessing one tablet of Adderall or Xanax that you don't have a prescription for. One tablet in your possession, and you get a felony charge. If you use cocaine and sniff it off of a small mirror, the dust residue left on the mirror in your possession will get you a felony charge. Just that much. Two million Americans, either in jail or on parole, most of whom were caught somewhere in the web of drug use, distribution, or manufacture. This is our honor killing. This is our honor killing. Addiction is a problem, but we've insisted on making it a crime. We insist upon treating addicts as criminals, and then by putting them into our prison system, lo and behold, it's self-fulfilling prophecy, we turn them into criminals, who when they finally have served their time and get out, cannot get a job, they can't get an education, they can't get a Pell Grant, they can't get into public housing, we don't even let them vote. They are cast off and sent into the distant country, where they do menial jobs for the rest of their miserable lives. Unless they come from a rich family, there's a different set of rules for rich families. I'm not going to chase that bunny into the woods today, but trust me, I'll get back to it. In Michael Moore's most recent documentary, Where to Invade Next, Moore stages a tongue-in-cheek one-man invasion of several Western European democracies in order to steal their ideas. He plants the flag in various countries and takes their ideas, many of which actually originated in the USA. I believe this was Moore's best film yet, and if I am allowed to make uh, uh, film recommendations to the world, stop what you're doing and go see this documentary. In one section, though, he invades Portugal, where the government used to conduct a war on drugs very similar to our own. However, once they realized after a generation, governments don't, don't learn fast, but after 20 years of arresting, punishing, uh, putting into prison their drug users, they made a decision to reverse their tactics. In Portugal, it was not simply a matter of legalizing or decriminalizing drugs the way certain parts of the United States are now uh, trying out. If you legalize drugs and that's all you do, Sure, you're going to get big tax revenue, but you will also get an increase in crime, a decrease in productivity, and a lot more addiction, even in the case of just marijuana. And I'm, I'm in favor of the decriminalization of marijuana. I wish that, that, uh, the circumstances that, that are currently present in Colorado could be spread around the country. But if you do that only, 
If all you do is make it legal, you will definitely increase the problems related to drug use. Because in Portugal, simultaneously, they they decriminalized it, but put money into treatment programs. They took the more loving and kind and realistic approach, acknowledging that addiction is a problem that calls for, you know, in the United States, when we start to legalize marijuana, we're just shrugging our shoulders. Whatever you do to yourself is whatever you do to yourself. But in Portugal, they legalized it and backed it up with treatment programs so that now when the police find a a heroin user in their streets, they take them to a treatment program. They understand addiction as a problem that can be solved, not a sin that calls for punishment. But it hasn't turned Portugal into a drug-free world. It has, however, reduced drug use by about 50%. took 20 years to do it. There's no quick fixes here. But the drug use rate in Portugal has fallen dramatically. But even their drug czar, Michael Moore interviewed in this film, acknowledges that drug use is a part of life. Folks, I've probably had six cups of coffee today. I'll likely have more caffeine before the day is over. I will spend part of the day on the Internet, which is another form of addiction in and of itself. We use alcohol. We use tobacco. We use television. We are creatures who have tendencies towards addiction. The issue is to curb it enough so that it is not a problem. But we're all users. We are all users of some addictive behaviors. Now, I'll confess that I did my master's thesis in the treatment of alcoholism. I worked as uh, a counselor in the VA treatment program. But I don't really like working with addicts. And I'll tell you why. The failure rate is too high. About half of addicts who go into treatment will begin abusing drugs again in less than a year. And I think in, in more honest estimations of putting someone through treatment and, and them successfully spending the rest of their lives without using the substance that created their problems, about 7%. Still, I trace the birth of my own substantive spiritual life to the recovery movement. I became interested in AA when I offered to take a church member to meetings, that I would go if he would go. And uh, that was Jim, and he decided after two weeks that all those old drunks in the AA meeting in the basement of the Methodist Church were just a bunch of hypocrites, so he quit going. Jim returned to drinking, and a few months later was found dead in his mobile home, having literally starved himself to death in isolation and intoxication. But I kept going to the meetings because what I saw there was what I thought church could be. People who were being honest about their own problems, who were reaching out to one another to find strength, support, encouragement, guidance, so that they didn't end up like Jim. What I love about AA is that it's life or death spirituality. I'm either going to get it together or I'm going to die. And I think a lot of us need to try to view our spirituality as not simply life enhancement, not something that puts a little icing on the cupcake, but a matter of life or death. Now, after all these years, I can't tell you that I'm really a huge fan of the content of the 12-step program of AA or Al-Anon. 
I'm not sure they wouldn't have a similar success rate if they just got together and read the phone book to each other. But that's just my opinion. Uh, But I believe that the healing comes from the relationships. That's what I think. I think the healing comes from the friendships, the community, the connection to other people who, like them, are broken and they're willing to admit it. Our emphasis on community is not an accident. It is a core spiritual value. Jung suggested that the part of the reason why we call alcoholic beverages spirits is because addiction is at some level a spiritual thirst, a hunger, a need, not a need for religion. Goodness knows religion, especially with its board meetings, give you reasons to drink. <laughs> but a spiritual need, a need to be connected, supported, cared for, loved, sometimes protected, and sometimes challenged, and sometimes becoming aware that somebody needs you too. We don't just go to community because I need to be fixed, but because I also need to be needed. I need to be a part of your life's journey. That's community, and that, I believe, is where all substantive healing happens. We just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, describing Jeff Sessions' renewed push in the war on drugs and dismantling of police reform efforts. Fake the Nation discussed the history of the drug war and the legacy Sessions is following. The Young Turks gave Sessions' most recent update regarding draconian sentencing guidelines. The David Pakman Show explained that opiate overdoses drop in states that legalize marijuana. The Tom Hartman program laid out the case for how drug addicts should be treated. Our activism for today is to call Congress in support of the Justice Safety Valve Act of 2017. And finally, we just heard Reverend Roger Ray give some theories on the underlying causes of addiction, and through that lens, a new understanding of how healing works as well. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. My name is Erica Melzer, and I live in Seattle. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about the Democratic Party, but first I want to quickly tell you about myself. I'm 32 years old. Uh, I'm a cisgender female, white, and I'm a legit progressive. Like, I want to see white supremacy dismantled along with the neoliberal capitalist structure that we've built here, and I agree with you on almost every segment that you choose to feature on the podcast that the DNC needs more racial and social justice, uh, real racial and social justice, not less, and that they need to get corporate money out of the party and move to a truer, more progressive left in every conceivable way. So on that, we agree. However, I don't always agree with your prescriptions or those of, uh, of your guests or the, the segments that you play on the podcast in the way that you guys talk about the Democratic Party. You know, the DNC should do this. The Democratic Party needs to, Democrats should, if the party doesn't, as though it's a monolith. After the election, I did several things to get more involved and be a better local activist. And one of the things I did 
was attend my county Democratic Party meeting, and I paid my $20 to become a member, and I asked to be a PCO. That's a precinct committee officer. I became a PCO in the Democratic Party because I wanted to get local and educate voters in my district and turn out the vote when when election came around. It's not a very big job. PCOs simply use the Democratic Party database to contact voters in their precinct, and a precinct might have 400 or 600 registered voters in it. And how you contact or engage with them is entirely up to each PCO. But here's the important thing that PCOs get to do. They get to vote on internal party matters. That's what the DNC is. It's a bunch of individual people like me, like you, all over the country, and we vote on every aspect of the party, every leadership position within the party on a local, state, and national level, and we vote on platform issues and approve the platform itself. We submit and vote on resolutions, things like whether we'll have a primary or a caucus system, whether or not to accept corporate money. In fact, we recently voted on that very resolution. Uh, the resolution would have stopped allowing Democrats to accept corporate donations, and it narrowly lost. This was in February, and I mean it barely lost. And do you want to know why? Because in most states, 30 to 50 percent of the Democratic PCO positions are vacant. We have completely disengaged from the Democratic Party. And of those precincts that do have a PCO in place, a slight majority, a very slight majority, because some people are there fighting, are middle-aged, white, centrist Democrats. That's who the PCO is in most of these districts, and about half of them are empty. The other half of the sitting PCOs are people like me. They're real progressives, and we're fighting to push the party to the left, but it doesn't help when the most progressive people in the country, people like you, Cenk Uger, people like Bernie Sanders, uh, people with platforms, progressive people with an audience, won't come and change it with us. And I don't blame anybody because six months ago, I didn't know that this PCO position existed. I didn't realize how things worked internally within the party, but... Uh, when you talk about the problems of the Democratic Party and the prescription is to vote for a third party or to distance yourself from the DNC or to talk about how the party is failing us, that's not going to help. That's We have an opportunity here. The party isn't failing us. Uh, the people the people who show up are getting to vote, and the party is representing them. It's doing exactly what they are voting and saying to do. So I just I would like to ask if if you could please stop telling people that the DNC is a failed neoliberal dinosaur and start telling them that it's theirs for the taking because it is. The GOP does not have widespread PCO vacancies because the Tea Party patriots, I'm air quoting, Tea Party patriots filled them and hijacked the Republican Party. And now that it's our turn, we can do that. We don't even have to take the PCO positions away from centrists because they're literally empty. So it, it's our turn now. Stop <laughs> stop telling people to leave the party or, or, or criticizing the party as though it's this thing that we can't change and have no power over. It's, it's there for us to change. Become a PCO and let's take our fucking party back.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or explanation of something so we all understand it better, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, my response to Erica. This is one of those interesting situations. It doesn't come up very often where a caller is, let's go with frustrated or annoyed, you know, somewhere in that range, and, and uh, you know, expresses their frustration and annoyance to me about a position that I do not hold. And so Erica will be thrilled to learn that I, I basically agree with her entire premise and, and everything she said about how we should be pushing for, you know, uh, taking greater power in the uh, political system. But it is interesting that, you know, a listener like her could listen to this show for however long she's been listening and come away with the wrong impression. And so I thought a little bit about how that could have happened. And I mean, as you know, I I listen to unhealthy amounts of political talk radio and I sort through it all and I pick all the stuff that I think is the best and I present it to you. And so, of course, during that listening, I hear all kinds of stuff I don't agree with and people can can be making great points and they have great objectives and and great analysis and then many of them will conclude and therefore that's why we need to only support the green party or yeah and therefore that's why I have never and will never vote for a Democrat, like because their analysis includes all the historical problems with the Democratic Party and the racism in their past or their neoliberalism of the present or whatever. And they say, you know, I, it, the I have never, uh, this is a real quote that I'm, I'm remembering. You know, they said, I have never voted for a Democrat. Okay, fine. I will never vote for, and I thought, do you not understand how political parties work? Like, do you think it's an immutable thing? That makes no sense. And same with the people now who say, you know, the Democratic Party is a, a lost cause and can't be saved. And that's why we need to build a brand new party or build up the Green Party or whichever. And I just thought, if that's possible, great. Like, let's make that happen. But to claim or to suggest that any party is completely sort of immutable in its stances and unchangeable is just obviously wrong. I mean, look how much the Republican Party has changed in the last few decades. Clearly, political parties can be changed pretty dramatically. There's no reason to think that the Democratic Party couldn't be changed similarly. Now, if you want to bring up institutional problems and, and, you know, systemic uh, barriers to change and you say, hey, it's just too hard to change it. It's easier to start something new. That at least is an argument, but you're basically arguing this battleship is too hard to turn around. So let's build a brand new battleship that's facing in the other direction. Okay. But those are both incredibly difficult projects uh, that, that you are uh, embarking on. You know, so I, I thought, Hey, I, I hear that stuff all the time and I don't play those clips. It's very rare that I would play a clip that is really full throatedly supporting whatever, uh, ignoring the Democratic Party and, and focusing only on building up something else. 
Whereas I do play lots of clips on like the Justice Democrats from the Young Turks or, you know, a couple other organizations that are doing the same thing. They're working on primarying incumbent conservative Democrats. And uh, and so uh, it reminds me of, you know, that old jazz quote, you got to listen to the notes I'm not playing. But on top of that, as soon as I heard Erica's voicemail, I thought, wait a second, that doesn't make any, I don't sound like that. And what is she even talking about? What about that clip that I played that is exactly what, now, where is, wait a second, where is that clip? Did I, did I not play that clip? And so I had to go digging for this. I had this exact clip, had it in mind. I I knew I played it. Turns out I didn't. And it got lost in the shuffle. So here's this clip that basically lays out what I think we should we should be doing. I, I could have sworn that I played it during one of those Democrats slash progressives slash the resistance kind of episodes that I did, but I didn't. Turns out I, I overlooked it. So here is that clip. As I understand the story, this was a project that was funded in part by wealthy conservatives, shall we say. In or and this is what essentially created the Tea Party. This is why there's a Tea Party caucus in Congress right now. Was because these videos were made, they were distributed, some of them online, many of them by DVD, distributed in person, uh, distributed to mailing lists of activists. And it was basically how to take over a political party and win an election. And there's some really important content here that I wanted to share with you. This is from the Concord Project, and it's it's fascinating. I'm going to play some excerpts. Like I said, if you want to find the whole thing, just you know, go into YouTube and plug in Concord Project, and, and I'm guessing you'll find they've got maybe a dozen of these videos that explain basically how do you take over a political party. And these, this was directed toward Tea Party activists and, right, and hard right-wingers who then did this. They went into the Republican Party. They 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 signed up to be precinct committee people, and they made and those are the people who select the primary candidates. And so they made sure that you know every candidate running for the primary was going to be a Tea Partier. And now you've got a Tea Party caucus in Congress, which is giving Paul Ryan fits. Poor Paul, uh, but it's there. I mean, this is how you acquire political power in the United States. And this was not by buying millions of dollars worth of ads. This was not by having giant, you know, rallies in stadiums. This was by activating average people who are willing to spend a night a month, uh, you know, showing up for their political party. And uh, it varies from state to state and what to, uh, but anyhow, let me play some clips from this. This is uh, the Concord Project's video. What's the most powerful political office in the world? It is not the president of the United States. It's precinct committeemen. Why? There's three main reasons. First, because precinct committeemen and only precinct committeemen get to elect the leaders of the political parties. If you want to elect the leadership of one of the two major political parties in this country, then you have to become a precinct committeeman. So if you want to be in a position to, to select the leadership of your political party, you got to become a precinct committee person, right? You, you with me on this so far? Okay, here it continues. Second, precinct committeemen and only precinct committeemen can vote in internal party elections to endorse candidates in the all-important, traditionally very low turnout primary elections. 
If a candidate wants to win the general election, he first has to get onto the general election ballot. To get on the general election ballot, he has to win the primary election. And the best way to win the primary election is to get the endorsement of as many party committees as possible. Precinct committeemen are organized into committees. For example, every county has a party committee. Every state legislative district has a committee. Legislative districts elect the people's representatives to the state legislature. So, you know, it's pretty straightforward stuff. Are, are, you, are you following around, along, I hope? Because this, this is the process. You show up. Now, he's, you know, pitching this to Tea Partiers to do to Republicans. But I'm pitching it to you to consider with the, with the Democratic Party. Instead of sitting around and complaining that your candidate is, is, is not being treated well or you think that the issues that you really care about aren't being addressed, and, and regardless of where you fall in the political spectrum, if you really want to change things. I mean, yeah, today is uh, secondary Super Tuesday. It's a voting day. Obviously, I, you know, we all want everybody to get out and vote, regardless of who you're voting for, regardless of which party you're voting for. This is a civic obligation. You know, just like taxes are the cost of a civil society, voting is the cost of a functioning democracy. But it goes beyond that. It, it goes to being, uh, you know, being, being a functional part of the political party in a way that you actually have some power and some control over that political party. Here's another clip. Second. Oh, I'm sorry. That's the same clip. Here's another clip. Now, the third reason you want to become a precinct committeeman is because in some states, when a vacancy occurs in a state legislator office, precinct committeemen and only precinct committeemen, not registered voters, get to nominate three nominees to fill the vacancy. The county board of supervisors then select the replacement. If, under a system like this, a majority of the precinct committeemen are conservatives, then all three nominees will be conservatives, and the eventually selected replacement will be a conservative. That's real political power. See, this is he's explaining how to game the system. Now, it's not game the system in some way that is unethical or wrong or illegal or weird or anything like that. It's actually how the system is designed to work. But it's not going to work for you the way you want unless you show up. Here's another clip. How does one become a precinct committeeman? Bottom line, every state has different rules and procedures for becoming a precinct committeeman with full voting rights within the parties. I should I should add this. Uh, I think this particular clip was made for Arizona because he talks specifically about Arizona. But anyhow, back to the clip with full voting rights within the parties and each party within each state may have different rules. In Arizona, for example, you must be elected to the office of precinct committeeman, but you don't have to get more than 10 signatures of registered voters from your party or from independents to get your name on the primary ballot. Precinct committeemen in Arizona are not required to pay dues. Ohio's system is similar to Arizona's. Other states require dues and require precinct committeemen attend meetings and sign pledges to support the party's candidates. Arizona's system does not require meeting attendance. So, in other words, you know, find out from your local party, your local state political party, how does it work? What's involved in becoming a precinct committee person? And here's a final clip from the Con- This is from the Concord Project. Um, 
and uh, I think we mislabeled it in the early on on the on the on the TV screen. But the, this is the Concord Project. So how do you find out how it works in your state? The best way is to contact your state or county political party organization and find out where your local party committee meets. Get on the internet and find it. Use the phone book. Call information. Then contact your party organization and find out when and where they meet. Then go to the meeting and ask how one becomes a voting member of the party. Take other conservatives with you. Be persistent. Don't be bashful. And before you go, you may want to get on the internet and see how much information already exists about how things are done in your state. It's pretty straightforward stuff. In fact, it's very straightforward stuff and uh, not rocket science. And But most people don't know it. Most people don't know how it works. And the Concord Project did a great job of educating Tea Partiers as to how to take over the Republican Party. And they succeeded. So with that said, yes, please go learn what you need to learn, get involved locally and take over the Democratic Party and make it the party you want it to be. Now, to be clear, I think it is completely legitimate to criticize the Democratic Party when they deserve criticism. The leadership, the establishment, all of the corporatists who have infiltrated every level of the party and made it the absolute unmitigated failure that it is today, they deserve to be criticized. That does not mean that it will always be that way and they should be given up on because, frankly, they're still the fastest and easiest conveyance to get us to where we want to go. But yes, the party needs to be taken over and turned in a dramatically different direction. All I'm saying is that that's easier than building something new from the ground up. The way I usually describe the two political parties is that I hate the Democrats just a little bit less than I hate the Republicans, and I think that's a perfectly legitimate stance. But I also recognize that the way to turn them into something that I don't hate is not just to shout from the outside, but to also infiltrate on the inside. So let's do it. As always, keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the beltway at outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame how we get so trained, we can't see past our own sad stories and wonder what we're missing. We can't see past our own sad stories and forget how to listen. We can't see past our own sad stories and wonder. What